American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Ben and Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in downtown Santa Monica in the heart of Silicon Beach. Um, please be seated. We have a great show for you today, um, but um, put on your acronym hat. We're going to be throwing them at you pretty quickly, um, we, <laughs> FYI. And um, today we're, we have Jeremy Malcolm with us from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF. Um, and he's going to be talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, Trade Agreement, um, most commonly referred to as TPP. And um, there'll be a number of other acronyms thrown about. But it's a very important agreement um, that has been signed by President Obama and um, several other countries throughout um, Asia. We, we covered this in episode 192 where we had a guest from the Chamber of Commerce kind of walk us through the pro side. So um, as we are now in the final of four days of protest in Washington against the TPP, um, this was a good point to bring on Jeremy to, to explain um, the TPP from the opposite viewpoint. And um, there's some compelling arguments uh, against TPP of, of, of the presidential candidates, surprisingly only two um, apparently of the major candidates support um, TPP in its present form. So, Jeremy, are you with us? Yes, thanks for having me. Uh, and um, pleasure to have you. Um, now, Jeremy's background, actually, he's been, he joined the EFF in 2014 um, and works on the international dimensions of issues such as intellectual property, network neutrality, internet governance, and trade. And he's actually has been, comes from having spent several years in Indonesia working on trade issues, including the TPP. And as you can tell, Jeremy is um, Australian. He's um, admitted, actually, a lawyer admitted both in Australia and uh, New York. So, Jeremy, welcome. Um, so tell us what's going on right now on TPP in Washington. Sure. Well, um, as you've mentioned, there are protests on the ground right now. We have uh, one of our um, experts, Myra Sutton, there with the other activists um, actually protesting. It's sad that it's um, come to this, that the policymakers weren't able to listen to us before it got to the stage of protests, but that's where we're at um, because uh, despite all of the efforts that we had to improve the agreement and to, to cut out some of the bad provisions, um, we we were disappointed by the final text, and uh, so now we have to send a strong message to Congress saying we just don't want it to be signed at all. 
And um, in terms of your we, who is who is we in, in kind of a broad sense? What, who, what is the coalition against TPP? Um, well, the protesters in D.C. at the moment are not a formal organized group. It's really an open uh, demonstration which a number of groups um, are participating in and, and anyone can join in. Um, there are a few coalitions. Um, there's one that's focused on uh, the IP issues in the agreement. Um, which EFF has been focusing on because of our um, one of our areas, of course, is is IP. So um, we have uh, a coalition called Our Fair Deal, which is focused on that. But there are also broader coalitions. Um, we work with um, labour groups, environmental groups, um, and um, uh, farmers uh, and and other groups that are interested in. Uh, other aspects of the TPP broader than what we are. Um, so there's some strange, uh, strange bedfellows in some ways uh, with the, with the groups that we're involved with. But everyone agrees that this process is wrong. It's um, too closed. It doesn't take into account the public interest. It's captured by um, big corporations, and so everyone from all colours of the political spectrum is coming together um, in DC with uh, behind these protests. So let's let's kind of um, back up and, and t- explain TPP what it is and and also what's unusual about it. Um, so TPP um, is involved. The signatories are Brunei, Chile, New Zealand, Singapore, Australia, Canada, Japan, Malaysia, Mexico, Peru, United States, and Vietnam. Um, and the idea is to create. Um, Kind of like a Pacific common market. Is is that a fair assessment? Pretty much. Um, it began as a small agreement just between four of those countries, and um, it only became the giant thing that it is after the United States joined, and uh, then sometime later when Canada, oh, sorry, when Japan joined. Um, so, as it stands now, it's potentially um, the largest free trade agreement in the world outside of the WTO, which is the World Trade Organization, um, which is essentially a a global structure. But this is the largest regional um, trade agreement that we have. Um, The other one that's of comparable size is being negotiated between the US and Europe right now, and that's called TTIP. So TPP plus TTIP together um, will um, cover the, the majority of trade in the world. Um, and having said that, there's definitely an imbalance between some of those countries. So when you uh, look at countries like Brunei, which is tiny, um, it's just a little island off Malaysia, um, and the United States, obviously there's a, a very significant difference in power there, so you can guess who is writing the rules, generally right. the U.S. Um, pushing its preferences onto these other countries. So I, I have Donald Trump on the other line. He wants to know if China is part of this agreement. <laughs> um, so China is not part of the agreement. This is the thing that was um, often people would speculate that the TPP was an, a weapon against China. Um, to some extent, that seems to be true. Um, but because China isn't directly a party um, it, it, it's not obviously going to be binding in any way on China. Um, so some of the provisions in there um, on things like government procurement um, and uh, um, disclosure, you know, rules that prohibit um, 
a country from requiring disclosure of software source code um, and rules on um, cyber espionage. These are things that seem to be targeted at China, but nevertheless, China is not a party. So what um, the rationale seems to be is that if we can establish these rules as regional norms, then there will be some pressure on China to conform, even though it's not actually uh, signed up. Well, with the, um, when we had the um, Tammy Overton of the Chamber of Commerce on, she said that, yeah, yes, I mean, obviously um, China is not a member, but they, they would envision at some point China becoming a member, or that would be a goal. Um, so, but the, one of the arguments they make against, um, you know, in terms of why we need to do the deal is otherwise um, those Asian countries would do a deal with China. And that will yeah. promote China's hegemony in the region. Well, that's happening anyway. Um, there's a regional comprehensive economic partnership, RCEP, also being negotiated between the Asian countries themselves, including not only China but also India, but excluding the United States. So um, TPP won the race to the finish line um, being concluded prior to the RCEP. Otherwise, RCEP would have stolen some of TPP's thunder. Um, but RCEP is continuing nonetheless, and that will be a significant agreement um, if um, they're able to conclude that in the, in the next uh, 12 to 18 months, which looks pretty likely. So we are going to have um, a different agreement with China, um, certainly not going to have the same standards in terms of things like intellectual property and so on, but um, the, the TPP is not going to ensure against China's dominance in the region. China is naturally going to be dominant in the region regardless of the TPP, and um, so I don't think that the strategy of containing China is, is very likely to succeed. And. Um one thing, yeah, this is that thing about uh, uh, over a billion people, kind of, kind of, kind of gets your attention. But um, I'm going to have to speak in somewhat hushed tones right now because one thing that seems to that seems odd about this agreement from the start is is a, is a secrecy. You know, NAFTA, you know, wasn't necessarily done in the same way. NAFTA being the North American Free Trade Agreement, um, which was negotiated under the Bush administration and then kind of finalized under um, the first year of President Clinton and then passed. Um, why was TPP so secretive? And is that the new norm for trade agreements? It's not really a new norm. It's actually um, the, the, what we always hear from the negotiators is that it's secret because that's the way it's always been done, which is relatively true. Um, but the thing is that trade agreements have changed since the early days of um, uh, NAFTA. Well, NAFTA is not really the early days, but since uh, um, from the early days up until NAFTA, we didn't have so many of the same um, issues that we do now appearing in trade agreements. So um, IP has only been in trade agreements um, for just over a decade since it was introduced at the World Trade Organization. Um, and we're getting new issues like e-commerce and telecommunications and um, um, th things that we've never seen before are actually in this TPP. For example, domain name rules, um, rules about encryption, um, rules about free flow of information across borders. Um, so these are the kind of things that we 
wouldn't expect to have negotiated in secret, unlike maybe things like the rates of tariffs and quotas. Um, you can understand why those um, right. would have to have a level of discretion around them. But these these broader um, public policy rules shouldn't be discussed in private because they really do um, require a broad um, public uh, discussion around these because um, that's they're they're fundamental you know issues that affect all levels of our society you can't just say that they're only of interest to um, people engaged in trade right so so one thing that um, we've seen in the TTIP the TTIP as I mentioned is the European agreement which stands for um, transatlantic trade and investment partnership Um, the Negotiators on the other side, on the European side, have been more transparent than the US. They've released all of their textual proposals for the TTIP, and the US hasn't followed suit. So they've heard some of the um, calls for transparency, and they've begun to heed that, but the US is lagging behind. And um, in the TPP, um, Despite the constant leaks, um, there were some chapters that we hadn't seen at all until a few weeks ago, when when the text had already been agreed. So let's let's walk through. Uh, obviously, the the EFF um, opposes um, the TPP. Why? Let's well, let's do one at a time. So, um, as I alluded to, we've got a number of other um, parties in the loose coalition that are interested in um, other chapters of the TPP, but we're mainly interested in the IP chapter, the e-commerce chapter, to some extent the telecommunications chapter, and the investment chapter. So (coughs) beginning with the IP chapter, um, one of the problems that we have there is that it gives... um, it basically exports the most stringent parts of U.S. law and locks them in place so that we can't change them, but it doesn't export the um, more permissive aspects of U.S. law that operate as a balancing mechanism here. So to give a more concrete example, um, we're exporting the life plus 70 years copyright term to um, all of the other Pacific countries, um, and that includes countries like Japan, Canada, um, New Zealand, Malaysia, Brunei, Vietnam, that are all going to have to increase their copyright term from uh, life of the author plus 50 years to life of the author plus 70 years. So that is going across the board. But what isn't going across the board is the U.S. fair use exception to copyright, which is one of the things that balances out that harsh and excessive copyright term. So um, what we would like to have seen is um, if we're going to be you know, exporting the harsh stuff, we should export the balancing stuff as well, and that hasn't happened. The rules that um, benefit the content owners are all binding, and anything that's in favor of users is just you know, a soft, unenforceable guideline. So it says countries should um, promote the public domain, they should have exceptions and limitations to copyright, they should um, achieve some balance, but there's no uh, enforceable or hard um, 
standards for that stuff. Everything that's hard and enforceable is in favor of the rights holders. In addition to... Let me just just put a a footnote or a coda on that. And the... There was a recent documentary uh, exposing um, Scientology. And the, the, the documentarian made a point of saying, I could not have done this document documentary um without really um fair use you know fair use allowed him to use you know certain um footage you know to explain what what the topic was what was going on and you know so basically a restriction that doesn't encompass fair use and in some ways um limits yeah, a speech to the extent that allows companies to use such content to expose um, and explain issues, and if, if the company, if you require the company to consent to anything that you know, they can use the, their the withholding consent to basically prevent negative um, content. Yeah, and and it wouldn't be so bad if there weren't such high penalties for infringing copyright because if you take, as a documentarian, if you take some footage and you use it without permission and you don't have a fair use exception to rely upon, then you could be liable not only for civil penalties but for criminal penalties. So it actually can involve going to jail for infringing copyright. Um, The reason why is because the U.S. um, has included language in the TPP about um, commercial scale infringement, which includes not only traditional sort of piracy, as in, you know, things like manufacturing um, fake DVDs and CDs, um, but also any other copyright infringement that's committed on a commercial scale, whether or not you actually make any money from it. So a documentarian may not make money, um, but if they distribute their, well, hopefully they would like to make money, but you know how <laughs> these things go, they don't always do so. Um, so, <laughs> so, so if they release a film and, it, and it's downloaded 10,000 times, um, that may be a commercial scale regardless of whether um, it pulls in a a return on investment for them. So that could be a criminal infringement. Um, And this is something that many countries didn't have before. They did limit commercial, sorry, they did limit criminal penalties to those who are like um, pirate, you know, pirate factories who are churning out um, counterfeit goods. So we think that's um, in conjunction with the fact that fair use isn't required, that's really dangerous. Um, we are not a documentary. Um, we actually, and hopefully we are making money. So we're going to take a short break for our sponsors. This is Ben and Kelly. You're listening to Cyberlaw Business Report. We'll be back after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Celebrating the best in online advertising, the Web Marketing Association presents... The 14th Annual Internet Advertising Competition Awards. Submit your banner ads, email ads, rich media, online newsletters, websites, and social media campaigns now by going to iacaward.org. Deadline for entries is February 15th, 2016. All winners will have their entry highlighted on the Internet Advertising Competition website, as well as receive a handsome trophy to display or a personalized certificate of achievement. 
be honored among your online advertising peers by submitting your entry into the Web Marketing Association's 14th Annual Internet Advertising Competition Awards. Submit your entry today at iacaward.org. That's iacaward.org. Reinventing keyword research, simplifying campaign optimization, redefining competitive analysis. SpyFu brings you an entirely new way to find the most profitable keywords for your SEO and PPC campaigns. New tools, new data, and a brand new look. We've streamlined SpyFu so that you can optimize your search engine marketing more efficiently, more accurately, and more intuitively. Visit SpyFu.com, that's S-P-Y-F-U.com, and start downloading your competitors' keywords now. Try it free. Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, So Social, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contest and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So Social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. Interestingly enough, looking at today in history, um, the uh, NAFTA was approved by the U.S. House on this day in 1993. So um, we're back and we're, we're talking about um, the, the new agreement, um, the TPP, and we're talking um, with Malcolm, um, Jeremy Malcolm with the EFF. And next week, um, as we uh, two weeks from now, when we come to um, Giving Tuesday um, following Thanksgiving, and you, we open up our checkbooks to worthy causes. Um, EFF has been a great friend to this show, and um, so I hope you would consider them in your EF in your. Um, um, giving Tuesday um, plans. So, um, but um, with that being said, Jeremy, um, you were going through kind of the, the principal arguments against TPP, and obviously one of them is the copyright issue, which you know, and some Canadian scholars have said would would you know eliminate vast amounts of public domain material. Um, you know, what are some of the other concerns that uh, EFF has? Uh, well, one of them is on DRM or digital locks. Um, this would extend and lock in the system that the US has which prevents you from bypassing um, these technologies that stop you from making copies, even if those copies are for lawful purposes. Um, it does allow countries to make exceptions to the rules against circumventing digital locks or DRM, but it doesn't require them to do so. So once again, this is um, a case where all of the mandatory rules are in favour of the copyright owners, but any of the rules that are in favour of users are voluntary. Um, now, how does this affect users? Well, I mean, if you've got an, an e-book and it doesn't work on the particular tablet that you want to use it on, um, then you might have to crack the DRM to be able to read it, and that would be um, not only a copyright infringement, but could, in some circumstances, again, be a criminal offence. Um, and 
this is even if you're not planning to make any unlawful use of it, even if you're just planning to to um, crack the DRM for purposes of reading it, which copyright law allows, um, doing so can still be an offence. So the this is an area which we've been grappling with for a long time in the US and here we have a system where every three years if you want to have an exception to these anti-circumvention rules you have to go to the Library of Congress and request an exception and explain why you deserve one and um, we've been going back every three years to ask for exceptions for things like unlocking mobile phones, um, for repairing your car, for um, moving movies from one format to another format and um, we've been granted these exceptions but m many of these exceptions but the ridiculous thing is that we have to keep going back every three years to renew right. these exceptions now in the TPP other countries aren't forced into adopting that style of uh, um, three-year exception system but they do have to have um, some form of uh, protection for digital locks and there's no compulsory exception um, for for lawful uses like um, um, you know, format shifting and uh, and archival and um, and security research so um, that's something else that we are disappointed about and um, one other thing that we're disappointed about is a provision on trade secrets which is much broader than we've ever seen before. Um, so this, so trade secrets are typically a kind of pseudo-intellectual property that prevents um, someone who uh, receives a secret in confidence from misusing that secret. So that's um, been part of international law for a while, but this provision goes further and says that if you use a computer system to access or disclose a trade secret, then that can be a criminal offence. Um, interestingly, this only requires you to access a trade secret using a computer s system, even if you don't disclose it to anyone else. Um, you're still in breach of this trade secret provision. So um, this is much broader than under the uh, World Trade Organization's um, agreement called TRIPS. Um, it's really a combination of a traditional trade secret law with something closer to a cyber espionage law that um, criminalizes accessing a computer system without authority. Um, so this, we worry, could... Um, impact on whistleblowers and on journalists who may use a computer system to access secrets as part of their research um, and uh, there's no requirement in the TPP for a public interest exception um, or a journalism exception. Um, so this could have a chilling effect and it's the first time we've seen language exactly like this in a trade agreement. Now, you know, and there's also language on net neutrality, I think, that people are concerned might be too weak. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so up until now, we've been mainly talking about the IP chapter, but there's a whole separate chapter um, on e-commerce, which contains a number of different things, ranging from spam to net neutrality to um, the free flow of information across borders. So this net neutrality provision is a strange one. Um, it's almost just checking the box um, to supposedly cover net neutrality but in a really ineffective and weak way. Um, so 
although it's not harmful, it's not actively harmful like some of the provisions in the IP chapter, it could be indirectly harmful if other countries look to this as the maximum bar of protection of net neutrality that they need to worry about and it could prevent us from striving for more um, more you know for more meaningful protections across the world um, so uh, yeah it's basically just saying there needs to be um, uh, also pri privacy is treated in much the same way so, so privacy and net neutrality are both um, name checked if you like in the TPP right so, they, there's there's a reference to them, but in terms of binding obligations on countries to do anything significant, there's nothing. It's basically just do something. Um, it doesn't really matter what it is. <laughs> and isn't so, there isn't there a provision on privacy that you know if the if industry creates some voluntary standards that should be sufficient? Yeah, exactly. So um, they. Supposedly, this is their way of dealing with criticisms that um, the TPP doesn't um, account for privacy, but it doesn't go far enough. So it says if you want to uh, – throughout the agreement, there are provisions that say you have to allow, for example, the free flow of information across borders. Um, if there is a compelling argument that you need to protect users' privacy, um, then you can do that only – if it is not a disguised restriction on trade. Um, the problem is that who's going to decide whether something is a legitimate privacy protection or a restriction on trade? It's going to be basically an investment court that's going to have to determine whether there's been a, um, a breach of this provision. And history has shown us that these trade courts um, are very partial to the pro-trade argument and not very uh, uh, skilled in um, determining whether there are legitimate public interest arguments. So in other trade agreements, environmental protections have been struck down, public health protections have been ruled invalid, um, and there's every likelihood that privacy protections will also be found to be an impermissible restriction on trade. So, I mean, case in point, um, when the German government tried to phase out nuclear power following the Fukushima disaster, you know, they were hit with a lawsuit under uh, a trade agreement. Yeah, that's exactly what happens because these trade courts or tribunals um, don't have human rights expertise. They don't have environmental expertise, expertise or public health health expertise, and these um, decisions come down with with a very extreme bias towards free trade um, and so despite the fact that you know privacy is mentioned in the agreement we, we can't have much hope that it's going to be taken seriously if this ever comes to a dispute and how is the tribunal cho chosen um, well there are two different types of uh, trade dispute under the TPP um, one of them is where countries have disputes against each other and the other one which is more concerning is where private investors have complaints against a country. And they can use this uh, system set up in the investment chapter which allows a private court um, constituted by trade lawyers to decide the dispute between the investor and the country. And um, these courts 
have been roundly criticized um, for their um, their bias. They are co- because they're constituted by trade lawyers, often the judges in one case will be the advocates in another case, and this obviously sets up um, a significant conflict of interest. Um, in the European um, TTIP that I've been mentioning, the um, Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, they've thrown out that model in favour of a brand new investment court system that is designed to um, be more uh, neutral. But the TPP still uses this old system of investment tribunals staffed with lawyers. So the bias that's inherent in that system um, has not been fixed for the TPP. It's basically just business as usual, and we're getting we're likely to get decisions like the one that you mentioned where um, a country was penalised for its decision to... Um, to address nuclear power safety concerns. Other cases include a case against Australia where um, it has been sued by the Philip Morris Cigarette Company um, over plain packaging laws for cigarettes. Um, It was claimed by Philip Morris that this law, even though it was made for public health reasons in Australia, um, was an impermissible restriction on its trademark rights. So the TPP does allow for these similar sorts of cases to go forward. They've tried to tinker around the edges a bit to stop um, some of the worst abuses, but in practice we'll have to see whether those changes come to anything or not. Um, And since the reforms aren't as significant as what the Europeans have um, decided to go for, I'm really worried that we're still going to see um, some public interest laws struck down by investors. And and so let's say um uh, so let's say Canada for example or it could be any country um they they pass one of those laws whatever it may be um and the tribunal that hears this how how likely is there to be even a Canadian or Malaysian or whoever whichever country is the you know the origination of the the dispute to have one of their even own members on a tribunal. Yeah, well, the, actually, the, the the board of um, the, the panelists on these tribunals are um, a very small number, and some research has been done, which um, actually ran some statistics on this and um, worked out the percentage of these um, disputes that are actually heard by um, a single um, um, trade lawyer, and it's pretty frightening how what a narrow group it is and certainly you're right that you can't expect that a trade dispute will be heard by someone from your own country um so this is along with the ip chapter the investment chapter is probably the um the most threatening in the entire tpp and so where are we at now because you know congress has passed um fast track authority um, and which means, and the president has signed the agreement. So, what what has to happen for it to go into effect, or or to block it? So, Congress has an up and up or down vote on this, which means they have to accept the whole thing or none of it. And the pressure is really on because even though um, there are many provisions that. Um, well, Republicans and Democrats alike would take issue with. Um, they 
they can't quibble with particular sections. They have to take all or nothing. And this puts immense pressure on them to pass the agreement. And that's what uh, the negotiators are relying upon. They think that it's going to be too costly for them to throw out the TPP and too politically difficult to renegotiate it. So um, that's what the that's what the, the demonstrations in DC are about. They're about um, trying to point out that if you can't get what you want, you shouldn't you shouldn't sign on to the dotted line at all. You should actually reject the whole thing. Does Congress uh, have, does Congress have to vote by a certain time period or? Yeah, so um, the calendar, um, I don't have the dates in front of me, but there was uh, 30 days from when the um, president uh, notified Congress of his intention to sign um, the agreement. Um, that's the, the next deadline that's coming up. Um, but in terms of uh, one, once the U.S. and the other countries sign, there'll still be a further delay because the U.S. has a process called certification whereby it has to, to um, certify that the other countries have um, passed their implementing laws in a fashion that complies with U.S. expectations. So um, the U.S. obligations to other countries won't arise until this certification process has gone through. Um, and that could take years, um, depending on how long the other countries take to put their implementing laws in place. So even after Congress signs, there'll be a, f a long phase out of, uh, or phase in rather, of the TPP obligations um, on the US and on the other countries. But it is, it, does Congress have to act now? If it, if it doesn't do anything, does it still go into effect or...? I guess procedurally, uh, that's what. What is? Yeah, no, there's no, there's no imperative um, to sign immediately in the sense that the thing won't lapse if it doesn't get signed straight away. Um, but on the other hand, it won't come into effect until we have um, a requisite number of signatures as well. So um, it, it's. It's an outside chance that we can defeat this in Congress, but um, the same battle is, is going on in other countries. And if we do manage to convince a sufficient number of countries not to sign, then the TPP won't go into effect. It's uh, not impossible that this could happen. Um, the Anti-Counterfeiting Trade Agreement, or ACTA, um, was another example of this, where um, they concluded the agreement. All of the countries had... Um, had signed it, but they hadn't all ratified it. And in the end, when um, demonstrations in Europe convinced the European Parliament um, not to ratify the agreement, uh, that that stalled the entire thing. And ACTA is basically a dead letter now. It's still on the books, but not enough countries have uh, ratified it for it to come into effect. So mm. it is possible, even though it's an outside chance, but still technically possible that the same thing could happen to the TPP and that even though it's been agreed, um, it isn't ratified in enough countries to take effect. How different is ACTIV from um, TPP in terms of you know, its provisions such as copyright? Well, ACTA was focused on enforcement um, and the TPP does have uh, an IP enforcement part in the IP chapter. 
So TPP can be regarded as a broader agreement than ACTA. Um, and it actually was um, more stringent than ACTA in a number of respects as well. So you can sort of think of the TPP as a super actor. Okay, well, we're going to take um, one last break. We come back, we'll wrap up our discussion of the TPP and get you on your way. This is Ben and Kelly. You're listening to Cyberlaw Business Report, only at webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Introducing Rumble, the smart mobile management system, the first end-to-end mobile platform where you can make real-time app modifications from a point-and-click dashboard. Want to change the design of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Want to change the ad map of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Want to change the content mix of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Power your mobile business with Rumble. Are you ready to rumble? Visit www.rumble.me. Is buying something that is made in the USA important to you? How do you know that it really is made in the USA? Certified Inc. is the only supply chain audit company on the planet which qualifies country of origin labeling. If it's important to you as a consumer to know where the products you buy and use in your own home come from, then it's also important for your customers. Visit us at madeinusa.net and find out more. Go to madeinusa.net because it's that important. Hey, this is Danny Sullivan to talk to you about Bruce Clay Incorporated. They've made Inc. Magazine's list of growing private businesses and have exhibited and sponsored at my conferences since the very beginning. You've seen their search engine relationship chart or you've read their SEO code of ethics. So you know their SEO experts, but did you know they can help you with PBC, web analytics, web design, marketing strategy, promotion and branding? Yep, get everything you need for success in the online marketplace. You can check it out from the professionals at Bruce Clay Incorporated. For over 10 years with offices worldwide, they've got the answers you need. Check them out today at BruceClay.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back and we're, we're talking to Jeremy Malcolm with the Electronic Frontier Foundation about the TPP. And um, just for your information, as usual, on our um, blog at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. You can find background information on Jeremy as well as the TPP. I encourage you to check it out. Um, and follow us as always on Twitter at cyberlawradio. And um, so, Jeremy, we, we're talking about where this stands. And you said that there, there might be a, a chance, you think, that this could actually be stopped at, at the, um, within Congress. How, how how optimistic are you? Um, well, it's an uphill battle, but things like but battles like this have been won before. We've already just spoken about ACTA, so the other right. obvious example is uh, the SOPA and PIPA internet censorship laws, um, which were once regarded as unstoppable, but then at the end of the day, uh, we did stop them. And you've already also mentioned how all but two of the presidential candidates have come out against the TPP. So um, public feeling, I think, is certainly on our side. Um, We are up against the might of the industry lobbyists who pushed this agreement from the beginning. So um, that's our weak point. We certainly can't match the the lobbying money um, that these companies have behind them. Um, And... Uh, throughout the agreement, we've seen 
the effect of this. So um, even Google, which is uh, a big company in its own right, was unable to get the changes that it wanted in the TPP uh, when it came into the negotiations asking for more flexibility. Um, Hollywood was able to prevail because they've been here for longer. They've got more contacts. There's kind of a revolving door thing going on between the U.S. trade negotiators and the entertainment industry and the pharmaceutical industries where we see former um, staff of the U.S. trade representative ending up with uh, plum positions at the MPAA, the RIAA or Pharma. Um, and I'm not uh, accusing them of direct corruption or anything like that, but I'm, I, I do think that it has to have an effect in the back of their minds thinking, well, you know, if I uh, give these uh, industry groups what they want, then, you know, maybe there'll be a, a good job for me waiting a few years later. So um, you, you, it's going to take a long uh, time and a lot of effort um, for us to overcome this kind of ingrained um, bias towards those industries. And uh, so although I am hopeful, I it would probably be overstating things to say that I'm confident that we can knock the TPP over at the last hurdle, but let's see. Let's keep our fingers crossed. But I have to think that when you have someone like Hillary Clinton who had extolled the virtues of the TPP at least over a dozen times, um, now during the campaign actively come out and oppose the TPP, that has to be some kind of barometer of the, the strength of the grassroots movement opposing TPP. Yeah, no one has any doubt about the strength of the grassroots movement. Um, it's really just a case that our political system is is really flawed in terms of um, how it responds to the grassroots compared to the um, the rich lobby groups that have had control of the negotiations since the start. So, um, if if everything was right uh, with the U.S. political system, uh, we, we, then we could be confident of defeating the TPP. But um, as it is, we our only recourse is to take to the streets, which is what we're doing now, and uh, just hoping that enough of the members of Congress will uh, see that public feeling and that disquiet over these captured trade agreements and, and make the right decisions. So um, the most I can say is that we're hopeful and... Um, the, and and Congress has the chance to do the right thing, um, but there's a lot of um, political pressure on them to to let this agreement through. So it is at best uh, a touch and go situation, and uh, we'll see soon enough how this plays out. No, I, I know you're you're from the EFF, and we're here primarily talking about the kind of the internet um, and intellectual property. Um, centered uh, issues in the TPP, but the other groups have expressed concerns over you know some of the patent con- issues in terms of its effect it may have on the introduction of generic drugs in other countries, and as well as um, concerns about its impact on the environment, on labor rights. And I, I know that's that's not your um, you know that's not your wheelhouse, but you know, is it, is that something you can talk about a little bit? Um, well, in general terms, yes. I, <clears throat> I have mentioned that pharma, the pharmaceutical industry lobby group, is one of the strongest um, industry groups behind um, the language in the TPP. Uh, what what often happens, and people don't realise this, but the language that ends up in the TPP actually originates with these lobbyists. They will write out what they want 
and they'll give that to the USTR and say, okay, you go and get us this. This is what we want. Um, so in terms of the pharmaceutical provisions, they wanted eight-year protection for biologic drugs in addition to their existing patent rights. And um, that's pretty much what they got. Um, we did score some uh, wins uh, on that question um, so that countries like Australia, which have less than eight years protection for biologics, could keep that um, lesser protection as long as they had other measures to compensate for um, their shorter term of protection. So, um, so I don't think that the pharmaceutical industry is 100% happy with what they ended up with, um, but they still did get the majority of what they wanted. And um, in terms of the other chapters of the agreement, um, as I said, I really am focused on only a few of them, but um, environment and labor activists are generally not too happy with the TPP either, and they're amongst the groups that are um, rallying in D.C. this week. Now, um, just quickly um, diverting back to, to you, um, you are, you've been active in um, civil society and Internet governance you know, for a number of years, and uh, you're actually founder of Best Bits. Can you tell us what that is? Oh, sure. That's, uh, well, it's a group of, uh, or a network of civil society groups that are active on Internet governance issues. And Internet governance is a broad topic which includes some things that come under the TPP. For example, the TPP does have rules about how countries have to um, manage domain name disputes and um, uh, <clears throat> it also says that countries have to make the registration details of people who register domain names publicly available. Um, these, are, these are topics that are actually already dealt with in much more transparent internet governance processes such as ICANN and also the national level domain name processes that exist in many countries. So it's really curious that the US has um, overridden its commitment to, um, to multi-stakeholder internet governance by inserting these agreements into the closed TPP. Um, it actually is pretty hypocritical um, to be honest because uh, they have made a lot of noise about supporting the multi-stakeholder model for internet governance, and yet um, the TPP is the antithesis of that. It's absolutely not multi-stakeholder. It's completely um, lacking down. in participation, and, and it's top-down, yeah. So um, having moved here from Australia and being in San Francisco, which has uh, very strong feelings on this topic, um, Australian football or American football? Sorry? <laughs> oh, Australian. Uh, I was never a real big football fan when I was in Australia, but just um, uh, as my patriotic duty, I will have to go for Australian football. All right. And you went to Murdoch University. Is that named after Rupert Mur Murdoch? No, um, it is not. Um, so we... Uh, um, Murdoch University is... Oh, who is it named after? No, there's another famous Murdoch... Um, whose name escapes me, but uh, it's, it's not certainly named not Rupert. <laughs> no, indeed. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us and um, you know, for the, all the, the past support from the EFF. Um, if people want to follow you, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, um, they can follow EFF 
uh, via our website and our Twitter account. If they want to follow me personally, they're also welcome to do that. Um, my Twitter handle is a bit weird, though, so I'll have to spell it out. It's Q-I-R-T-A-I-B-A. It's not an EFF official uh, Twitter account, but I do post work-related things there, so you may find that interesting. Otherwise, EFF's Twitter handle, of course, is just EFF. Great. And uh, we'll have all that on our um, show notes on our blog as well. I want to thank you um, for all your, your insight. And this is a very critical issue. Uh, for listeners, uh, you may want to consult the blog in, in light of all the um, acronyms we threw out. But um, Jeremy, thank you again. It's been a pleasure having you. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. So I want to thank you, everyone, for joining us for another edition of Cyberlong Business Report. And um, be sure to check out our blog, as I mentioned. And also, check out the Internet Law Center, internetlawcenter.net. We're a full-service internet firm, and we're actually I'm going to be going to Las Vegas this afternoon for our biannual meeting of the Internet, um, leadership, um, internet Law Leadership Summit. And look forward to seeing all my colleagues in Internet Law later today and for the next two days. So shout-out to them. Um, and that's all we have. So join us next week on another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. This is Bennett Kelly saying be safe out there and have a great week. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program as well as our complete library of programs on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.